Hey, everybody. Welcome to the UNT College of Music In Context podcast, the show where we talk about life and music sometimes. With me, Hayden Drew, the lovely Hannah Brayfield. Hi. Since this is our uh, our first episode, I'm going to, I think it's a good idea to uh, maybe tell you guys a little bit about uh, what exactly we're doing here. So the whole thing that we're going to do with this is that, well, there's a lot of people here in the, in the College of Music, and well, we're going to talk about them. We're going to talk with them, and it'll be super cool. If you've ever looked at someone enter your aural skills class, your music theory class, wanted to go to an office hour so bad just to get to know some of the amazing people that you're around every day and been like, oh, I don't know, it's it's awkward, or I'm scared, it's so weird being professional, this is the place to go. We're going to take the time. And we have our very first guest star, the wonderful, the fabulous Brett Penshorn. Say hi, Brett. Hello, everyone. How are you doing today? I'm doing outstanding. (laughs) That's great. I'm glad. A lot of crazy times happen. I I know things are uh, really tough for just about everybody right now, but it's good to have these little uh, conversations, I guess. So I know that you did your undergrad here at uh, UNT. Could you tell us a little bit about, like, like how that transition has been going from, I guess, first with studying with Professor Fisher and, and Dr. Williams and stuff, and then then with Professor Glocky at Penn State, and then now coming back and studying with Professor Cook and, and Dr. Traxel. Yeah, well, my, uh, my origin story for UNT goes all the way back to, to high school. I had three different band directors in my four years of high school, and uh, the one that showed up my junior year, his name was John Roshuber, and he was an alumnus from North Texas. And in his first year at that program, I mean, he was really able to turn things around. We actually advanced to the state marching contest uh, for the first time in school history the first year he was there. And so it, it didn't take long for us all to, to recognize the value that he brought to the program um, and such. And he, he, he saw very early on that I had musical talent and, and wanted me to, to capitalize on that. And so he, he was one of the factors that motivated me into looking into North Texas. Um, he owned a lot of the Wind Symphony recordings. He was actually on um, um, a few of the recordings when Professor Corporon first got hired at North Texas. And so... Um, so he's an alumnus as yes, well. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so when I, um, when I actually did my uh, audition at North Texas, he actually... Uh, drove drove my mom and my sister. I was actually in Lubbock. Oh um, my god! Yeah, I, I was in Lubbock at the time uh, for a state conference uh, in, in Business Professionals of America. I think I had advanced Ooh. to state in like advanced word processing or something. And, <laughs> and uh, um, so I flew out of Lubbock before the conference was over and actually met uh, Mr. Roshuber and my mom and sister. He had driven them up uh, from the San Antonio area. And so... Um, you know, to, you know, basically helped, you know, facilitate the audition, showed me around, showed me around campus and everything. And so, um, you know, North Texas, it was between North Texas and UT Austin. And there was just something about Denton that just captured my heart. And, and I think in the, in the back of my mind, you know, UNT was always the place I wanted to go. That was my dream school. And so, um, I think it was the Texas Bandmasters Association convention that summer, the summer before I showed up at UNT, I will never forget the North Texas Wind Symphony was performing. And um, I I went to that performance and I was just captivated. And it was the next day, Corporon was giving a clinic 
And afterwards, uh, I actually walked up, walked right up to him and introduced myself. You know, hi, I'm Brett Pinchon. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be coming as a freshman saxophone player, you know, the whole works. And I'll never forget, he told me, well, Brett, you know, it's so nice to meet you. When you get settled on campus, why don't you come stop by my office and, and we'll have a chat. So the, um, the first week, I ended up making symphonic band that year with Professor Fisher. And um, I don't know if wow. it was the Tuesday or the Thursday rehearsal. It's probably Thursday. I remember the very first rehearsal at UNT, I actually showed up about 10 minutes late. Um, <laughs> and uh, I learned very quickly that you don't do that, especially with Professor <laughs> Fisher. Uh, but I, it must have been Thursday. I, I walked back with him you know, to his office. And he had a, we had a really nice chat. And I told him, you know, this is what I'm interested in doing. I'm interested in conducting. And he, he flat out told me right then and there, well, you know, graduate with a music ed degree, go out and teach a couple of years, and then, um, you know, start looking, you know, back at degree programs. And I guess I always knew I wanted to get back to North Texas and do my graduate degree there. Um, I got about as close as I could to the Wind Studies program as an undergrad. I um, interviewed to be one of the Wind Studies librarians. And so I, I served in that capacity, which is really cool now that I'm now running that, you know, the, the library rather <laughs> than, you know, so it, it, it's all, it's all come full circle. Um, you know, Dr. Traxel was finishing his DMA. Uh, his last year of DMA was my freshman year. I took conducting lessons with him. Aww. And so, yeah. So, I mean, Did again, it's like. Did you a new band or concert band? No. So back then there was only wind symphony, symphonic band, brass band, and then uh, Dr. Williams did concert band, and uh, it had gotten so big that they ended up doing two sections of it. So, like, there was a wow. 115 section, a 315 section. Oh, um, hey, that sounds familiar. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and, he, and he did both of them, and then, um, and I wanted, if I remember correctly, it was on Monday and Wednesday, and then basically all those students then went to marching band. So if you were in concert band <laughs> and marching band, you, your entire afternoon was, was full of Dr. Williams, so... Um, uh. But yeah, it, you know, it's it's been really interesting to be involved with wind studies for over a decade now, and, and to see how many things are the same, but how much has changed. Um, I, I'm really happy with the hires that we've made as of lately. I mean, I, no one can argue the profound impact that Fisher and Williams had on the program. And you know, I I remember seeing the North Texas Wind Symphony back in 2005 when they played at TMEA. And it's so funny, I still have that program and on the faculty listing it's the same three guys. <laughs> and so, you know, they remained as a cohesive team for a long time and and you know, we owe a lot of where North Texas is in the grand scheme of things to those three individuals and really to the College of Music as a whole, but you know, they really put North Texas on the map. And so, you know, with hiring Dr. Traxel and hiring Professor Cook, who brings a completely different perspective, coming from Northwestern, studying with Dr. Mallory Thompson, um, you know, we're, we're so fortunate that, you know, they're, they're continuing the tradition of excellence, but also building on top of that and looking at new ways to, to um, you know, to further the profession. And so it's, it's a really exciting time to be back in North Texas. It's unfortunate that, you know, that our plans have been put on hold uh, due to the coronavirus. Um, but I'm, I'm really anxious to see, you know, how when we do get back and, and get to start making music again, how we pave the way for, for the profession. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, like, what is different then? So, like, especially not just, like, the College of Music and Wind Studies, I guess, but like Denton, because I've heard a lot of people like Donald Bruce. He's been here for mm -hmm. like or 
has been there for oh, like Oh gosh, Donald years. Bruce was here when I was an undergrad. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I saw him and I, I, I thought to myself, Donald, you're still here? I mean, <laughs> no, I, um, yeah, it's, you know, I always tell people there's so much that's the same, yet there's so much that's so different. I mean, Razor Ranch was not a thing. I mean, you would drive north on Bonnie Bray and, and get to the, um, the 380 Bonnie Bray intersection. There was nothing to the left. Uh, between there and and, um, and I-35, um, but I, you know, places like East Side, you know, uh, uh, Zero Coffee House. There's just there's a lot of cool little little you know small town shops that have popped up that are you know really make Denton a much more enjoyable place to be. Not that it wasn't back then. Um, but it, it's grown a lot. There's a lot more traffic now. I, I, it, I, I can't believe it. You know, Denton is 30 minutes away from Denton, I think, is the, is the running joke. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and there's been a lot of changes to campus um, in, a, in a good way. You know, the, the, they've updated the union. Um, it, it's a much more attractive place, I think, to go to school now. Um, you, if you guys remember Fouts Field, that's where we had all of our football games. And, you know, we would, we would march in that stadium. And it felt... It never actually felt like a high school football game because you know you have the track around the field, and so there was just this this separation <laughs> from the event. They just felt, you know, felt separated from everything. So uh, honestly, I, I had not been back to Apogee Stadium until the first uh, football game that I, I was working with the Green Brigade. You know, oh my, my first god! So you must have been like, <gasps> yeah, it was it was <laughs> it was quite an experience to get to see. But I'm I'm so proud of the university um, in in the way that they've expanded and the way that I mean, I'm sure if you've seen, you know, UNT always makes that list of like, you know, the ugliest <laughs> college campuses <laughs> on, on every, on every, in every state. Um, and so, you know, I think we're making positive progress. Um, you know, there, it's a research one institution now, which, you know, has upped up the level of rigor in, in all the different departments. Um, but, you know, it, with, with expansion comes, you know things such as they're gonna they're trying to get rid of my favorite sub shop and you know i i mean i yeah i have you know i have my booth that i've had since 2006 in that place and i still eat there and i have invited you know people to have lunch with me there and such. where do you so sit where's your it, place it's in the back room in the very back uh in the very back little booth because i oh. i i like sitting up against the wall and and being able you know to sort of see everything but know that nothing's you know <laughs> nothing's that, coming in the back right yeah i'm not gonna so get had while i'm trying to enjoy my my you your know. pizza sub yeah it, oh. it's actually a number 12 on wheat with no onions and oh, a small chicken tortilla soup oh i've never had the soup there is it good it's, it's great it's really good Ooh. so okay um but yeah i mean it just it, and it's interesting that again so many things are the same but yet all the for the most part, you know, 99.9% .9 of the people that I knew in Denton and at UNT when I was here are all gone now and are all, you know, out doing their things. And so in that way, it's, it's, it's weird because it's such a familiar place, but all the people are different. Um, yeah. And yeah. so, and actually, just side note, I actually just found out uh, this past weekend, uh, someone that I w was in the saxophone section with me, Green Brigade, he was a non-music major. I, th I think he was criminal justice. Um, he was a, a a patrolman down in Colleen, and he was actually involved in an eighteen. He, he I think he had pulled someone over, and he was involved in an eighteen wheeler accident that had that um, ended his life way too early. Oh my um, god! I'm so, so sorry. Yeah. 
yeah so it's um it's it, it, it's odd it's odd being back it's just a lot of memories I, you know i can't i can't drive through town or walk across campus without having a, a bout of deja vu um, <laughs> but at the same time it's really great that i've i've gone out i've i've taught i've i've been to other places i've seen other things and so i i hope that with me being back at North Texas, I, I'm having the opportunity to give back, but not just giving back, you know, alumni, you know, sharing with, with, with the students, but, you know, bringing other, other ways of doing things other than just the North Texas way. Because I remember, and, you know, this was something, um, you know, you had asked what was different back then. There was a little bit of this, you know, we're North Texas, we're better than you kind of attitude. And, you know, we felt that the way that we did things is the way to do things and everybody else is wrong. And what I've realized is that every single situation, every school, every university, every educational opportunity is different. It has, it, it, it's its own unique thing. And there are other ways of doing things. And so, you know, I hope that I'm, I'm able to bring that to the students that I teach and, you know, just to, to bring other viewpoints. And I think that's been the one thing that I, you know, I'm so glad I, I didn't do all three of my, you know, degrees at North <laughs> Texas. Um, you know, I did, I did get out. But, you know, Dennis Glocky at Penn State, you know, he did his undergrad at Wisconsin when uh, H. Robert Reynolds was there at the beginning of his degree. Or, and I think he took the job at Michigan. And who took the job after H. Robert Reynolds? But a very young Eugene Corporon. And so, again, you know, I can't I can't um, state this enough that our profession is so small when you really think about it. And yeah. so, um, you know, everybody's connected in some way. And so that's been that's been really cool that I've I feel like I'm connected, you know, to H. Robert Reynolds in a lot of different ways. I'm a student of Eugene Corporan. I'm a student of Dennis Clocky. Dennis Clocky was a student of Eugene Corporan. I mean, it's the, the family tree, you know, <laughs> it's. It's a there's, twisted there's, branch. I was going to say, there's some places where it doesn't quite fork. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been really great being back. And um, I, I'm, I'm really glad with my decision to, to, to come back. There's, there's days where I just think, why did I do this? <laughs> they're, yeah. They're, they're far from me, you know, and especially when there's, when there's familiar faces uh, you know, like Professor Corporon, like Linda Strube in the program office, you know, uh, Don Taylor, Donna Emanuel. I mean, those those were all here when I was here the first time. And so it's and it's been really great for them to see me go out and apply what I learned the first time. And now, come, you know, coming back and trying to give back and, and better myself and, and learn more. Um, you know, I was I was. Um, this past weekend, we had a Zoom birthday party for Professor Corporon, and we invited all of his former grad students from all of the various schools that he taught at. And I was in a little side conversation with some of the grad students who were in the program when I was an undergraduate. And one of them had made the comment, you know, Brett, it's so good to see you. We all knew you would end up back at UNT. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> you know, but here I was thinking that it was going to, you know, be a straight line, but, you know, life kind of had a different plan for me and the path, you know, really kind of looked like this. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's what makes, what makes North Texas special to me too, I guess. It's, it's, it's the people, right. That are there for me. And I mean, you know, that's, uh, that's what we do this for, I guess the, this whole, Thing that we do anyway um 
So well, I, I think I think we're learning that more now than ever. You know, oh, I, people keep asking, you know, how do you think things are going to be different when we go back? And honestly, I I just think that we're going to value human interaction more. I think you know we we have been so consumed with technology as of lately. I mean, you you know, I, I walk across campus and everybody's got their head on you know in their phone. <laughs> you know, aren't even really watching where they're going. I almost, I almost hit someone with my car because, you know, they weren't paying attention to where they were going. And so I, I hope that now that we're in a situation where we're not electing to do the technology, I mean, we have to, it's our only way of, of, of communicating with people right now. I, I hope that it sort of drives people back to the humanistic element of, of what we're about and, and what we do. Um, you know, that ideas are getting tossed around about, you know, what, what the fall is going to look like. And, and honestly, you know, most of the scenarios I've heard are not, are not great. And, you know, even if we do get to perform, is anyone going to be in the hall? Are we going to be playing for anybody? And so I think, you know, by no choice of ours, I think we're really going to um, be put in a position where we are going to reprioritize and what are the things we value. And, you know, they always say you don't realize how much you, you, you appreciate something until it's not there anymore. And so whether it be ensembles, whether it just be, you know, walking down the hall and, and uh, you know, talking with people that all of that's been put on hold now. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it definitely is the people. Definitely is the people. I mean, yeah, the music's great, but you can't have music without people. So true. At, at, I, least, yeah. at least with what we do. I mean, you, you <laughs> yeah. Know, and Between I, and the music ed classes and, you know, we try to make it work, but it's yeah. just not the same. You know, yeah. I can't go to the elementary school and go teach a kid. Right. Like, you know, you can talk to them over Zoom or over the phone. I can talk to my grandma over the phone, but it's like they're just so different. Our activity requires yeah. that we be in person, really. Well, and whether my conducting class appreciated it or not, this <laughs> I did. I did still do, you know, an hour class three times a week on Zoom, and I did it live. I had the option of, of you know, pre-deciding what I wanted to say and recording videos and having people watch them on their own time. But for me, it was about, I, I want to see everyone's face. I want to see the reactions of people. And I want to see, I just want to see that you're okay. I mean, I feel like I'm, <laughs> I I'm, love I'm pretty, I feel like I'm pretty good at reading, you know, reading emotions and reading certain things. And, and honestly, I mean, I could tell in people's faces the, the, the fear, the terror, the, the uncertainty, the stress, um, I've, you know, I've, I've had a few students that I've chat with one-on-one -on, -one on Zoom that have had, you know, emotional breakdowns. And that's really hard when you can't, you know, give the person a hug right there. You have to give them this virtual, you know, bear hug. And it's, it's just not the same. And I, I know it's taking the toll on the students. I can see it, I, you know. And so, um, and, and, you know, in, in addition to, to talking about this, this humanistic element, um, I think for me with, with the DMA, you know, people ask me, you know, oh, what are you learning in the DMA, you know, or how do you become a better conductor, you know, blah, blah, blah. What I've realized as of lately, and it, this is at least true for me, this may not be true for other people, but I realize that the area that I want to develop really in my DMA is that humanistic side. It's the, I just want to learn to be a better person to where the music making that's happening in front of us is authentic and real and people are not afraid to be vulnerable. 
Oh. And I can tell you that that's something that, you know, asking about, okay, well, how is UNT different now than it was back then? You know, I, and I'm not, I'm not going to point fingers or point names, but <laughs> there, it, it's a very different approach now. It's, it's, and, and not only that, I think education has kind of changed. This whole idea of the tyrannical conductor that, you know, has absolute authority and stands on the podium and basically just makes all these commands and you have these subjects, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it's just not the way that education is anymore. You know, that, that this idea that the teacher possesses all the knowledge and the students are just empty vessels, that's not it anymore. You're starting it's very to see, Frarian of you. Well, I mean, yeah, you, you know, we're seeing this move that we want it to be, you know, student-centered, and the teacher is more of a facilitator than a lecturer. I mean, you're and and when you guys go out into the public schools and you're starting to write lesson plans and all this kind of stuff and going through professional development, you're gonna you're gonna see that this model is really taking hold, and it's exhausting <laughs> you know, to to do correctly. Um, but, you know, we're seeing that with ensembles as well. And so, um, you know, I, I, it's becoming more important than ever to create a safe space. And, you know, I, I think about all the times that I've either played, at a, played my instrument, played at a departmental, gotten up in front of a group and conducted. You're very vulnerable. You're dealing with the three most personal aspects of yourself, your face, your body, and your emotions. And so, for me, what I've what I've tried to do as of lately is really get to know the people in my ensemble. And I, I realized for a long time, I wasn't very good at that. I showed up, I, I taught them what I thought they needed to know, and I left. There was no connection. There was no, and so, um, you know, I started showing up to rehearsal 30 minutes early. And, um, you know, people would, would, you know, trickle in and just, you know, go and just have little, you know, brief conversations with people and just try to get to know them on a, on a personal level. And, um, you know, some players are more okay with that than others, but I just, for me, when I step up on the podium, I'm a lot more willing to take a risk and to expose my, my soul to them if I can look out and I'm looking out amongst friends. From the perspective Versus, of someone who's been in your ensemble, that's so apparent and you know your <laughs> yeah, ensemble was my first ensemble at unt oh uh, wow I, I, yeah <laughs> <laughs> pressure <All> right, <laughs> yeah. Right. um you did really good uh it's been a couple of semesters since then but um you well, know and, and and that was a rough semester hannah and, and it I, was hard <laughs> it, was, it was hard that was 120 students in that band um that was a really big band. And yeah. <laughs> spring semester gets everyone. They always say, you know, fall semester is so hard because you have, you know, it's marching band season and everyone at UNT is obsessed with marching band. And um, that was a uh, generalization. But um, <laughs> it, you see a lot of people stressed about the fall semester and then the, the spring semester, like, hook tails them from behind. It gets you. Yeah. So everyone was super stressed, and, you know, that ensemble was so huge. I don't know how they managed to stick you with that. So really good work, but I could tell, like, when you would look across the ensemble, I felt like I knew you. Yeah. And we didn't talk a ton because there were 120 people in the ensemble. <laughs> yeah. But it felt safe, and well, I, that's I hard to do. That. Well, and, and, you know, since that semester, I feel like I've, I've gotten better and better at, at doing that. 
and and you know you want to you want to do it in a way where there's not necessarily favoritism going on and I mean everybody you want everyone to be on equal footing and you want everyone to feel like their contribution is valuable and I think that's really hard to do sometimes um, and not to mention I mean I think ensembles can be the most uncreative thing on the face of the planet and and you know I'm I'm a I'm a real believer that you know it's not just you know, I say you play, I want to know how you feel about this. I, I want you to know how I feel about it, um, but I also want to know how you feel about it. And I, I want people to have the freedom to take risks and to be vulnerable and to really put themselves out there. I think that's where the best music making happens. Um, you know, Professor Glocky at Penn State used to refer to these, um, he called them SMEs, S-M-E, Significant Musical moments. It's those moments that you can't even necessarily describe, but it's the ones that live in your soul after a performance. And there may only be one or two an entire concert, but it's those things that you are just going to remember for the rest of your life. And you may not remember what the music actually sounded like. You may not remember what was going on, but you just remember this feeling you had of how the, how the music made you feel. And, you know, for me, Anyone who's ever been in my ensemble, one of the things I try to do the very first rehearsal is to put a piece in the folder that is not technically difficult at all. You know, a piece that's sight readable. Usually it's a slow legato piece. But what I try to do is, you know, read through it once and then go back and actually do something with it and try to get them to have a significant musical moment in that very first rehearsal in the first, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And, you know, whether it's doing Omanya Mysterium by Morton Lordson and really holding back on that really big, you know, build, 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 let the suspended symbol roll. And then finally the dam breaks and it releases versus ah. the first time I did it where I just kind of blew right through it. And so getting them to understand that, yeah, notes and rhythms are great, you know, and, and they've got to be correct. But there's so much more that we could be doing with this. And there, there's an emotional aspect to this that I think a lot of students, when they arrive their freshman year, I don't think they're aware that that power is there in the music. Um, there's you know, a lot I, of people that are like, this music's just too easy. And <laughs> <laughs> music well, is too easy if you're not, like, I guess, thinking about it creatively. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, if it's okay with you, I mean, that could segue into my next talking point. Oh, sure. About, of course. Okay. Um, and I, I'm actually uh, uh, in the beginning stages of trying to come up with a, with a uh, topic for the TMEA convention next year. Ooh, exciting. And it, and it talks about repertoire selection. And, and I, the basis of this idea, again, I stole from Professor Glocky, but he used to refer uh, to these continuums where, you know, every piece out there can fit on one of three continuums, um, the technical continuum, the musical, and the intellectual. And essentially, you know, his point was, you know, let's say the left, the left side of this continuum is, you know, the easiest piece known to man. And, you know, on the right side of this continuum is, you know, something super difficult, really difficult to play. It would give professionals a hard time. And how each piece can fall somewhere on this continuum. And so, for example, you know, Omanyam, maybe it's not super technically uh, demanding, but it's musically demanding. Yeah. And so, you know, you have to know what the comfort zone is of your ensemble. 
and that you want to try to push maybe one or two of those continuums at a time. So like for Omanyam, I would choose that piece because I would want to expand my group's musicality versus, you know, I may choose a piece like The Red Machine by Peter Graham where it was going to challenge them both technically and musically. Maybe not so much intellectually, um, but, you know, you don't want to choose pieces that push all three at the same time, but you also don't want to choose a piece that doesn't push any of them. You know, <laughs> that, you know, you can read through it the first time and it's, you know, almost concert ready. Um, I guess that's knowing your ensemble well enough right. to be able to apply just enough challenge in any of those areas to right. fit what where they're at. Well, and, um, you know, referring this to educational psychology, um, this goes back to Vygotsky. I wrote this on a post-it note. Vygotsky and the zone of proximal development where they talk about finding tasks, you know, finding kind of this this space where it's not so hard the kid, you know, can't do it by themselves, but you also don't want it too easy. You know, you, you got to find that, that, that healthy medium. Um, but the reason I bring these continuums up is that from what I see in high school programs, and this is, this is a generalization, you know, I, I, I don't have specific numbers to back this up, but it just seems to me like, like, especially band directors, are so adamant about moving their students down the technical continuum. You know, we got to play faster, we got to play louder, we got to play higher, all, you know, all these things, but they don't necessarily develop the musicality or they don't necessarily choose pieces that aren't going to be immediate cells. Um, you know, I had programmed for this second concert cycle and concert band, uh, the Persichetti Psalm for Band, which is quite an intellectual piece. I, it's a piece that every time I look at it, I learn something new about it that I didn't figure out the time before. And it's, it's like peeling layers of an onion. I mean, there's always another layer. And even in the, the few rehearsals we had on that piece, it was amazing the things that we were digging out of this piece. And so... Um, and, and for me, a lot of my favorite pieces were pieces I didn't initially like. I, you know, I heard it one time and I just didn't understand it. I didn't get it. I, and, you know, unfortunately, it would have taken a couple more listenings to really kind of understand, you know, what was, what was going on there. And I think we need to have those kinds of pieces in our repertoire. Um, my high school went through a really similar deal where we, we were presented with, you know, UIL, whatever, here have some music. And my band director did his best to try and have us, you know, perform music that we were interested in. Um, he, he had the hard sell pieces, and he gave us Elsa's procession to the cathedral. And we hadn't really heard it before. Most of us weren't, like, listening to concert music for funsies. I know, I know, go ahead and make fun of me. <laughs> but um, the people in the band at first were like, ugh, the slow piece. Mm -hmm. Ugh. <laughs> mm. And like you know you listen to a, a good recording of it where people are applying their musical senses to mm -hmm. it you know the phrasing and it's gorgeous I, it's tearjerker music <laughs> well and and you know the the other thing with these continuums is that not only is there an ensemble comfort level that i, th I think you know every ensemble has but i think there's also an educator comfort level and you know the 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 bigger the difference between the educator comfort zone and the ensemble, the teacher has more to offer. But hmm. what you end up seeing is that a lot of times a, a, a teacher who's not comfortable with slow legato music 
or it's not comfortable studying a score to unearth the various layers, they end up not choosing music that does any of those things because they're not comfortable with it themselves, which is why I think it's so important. You know, people think, oh, I'm going to go be a band director, so why do I need to play my, my instrument very well? Well, because, I mean, even to this day, I rely so much of my musical decision back to how would I play it on the saxophone. And, you know, this past year, I've had the opportunity to play with the Lone Star Wind Orchestra uh, two times, you know, filling in for one of their saxophone players. And it was, it, it astounded me how much I forgot about being a player and how <laughs> sometimes my mind would start to wander and I would get a little unfocused. And so I, you know, going back to the instrument and, and, and sitting in an ensemble and, and being on that side of things was a, was a really, really, really uh, valuable experience for me. What did that change in how you approached your ensemble? It's a really good question. Um, I started to take take inventory of when I would start to lose attention, Ooh, and and yeah. it was you know directly correlated with how many words were being said or <laughs> um, how how long maybe you know fine tuned detailed work with a specific section was happening you know how oh, long like, was all right, I these al- trumpets needed we needed to just move on yeah right yeah you know <laughs> how long you know how long have I been sitting here not not being involved now granted. Um, I mean, I, I'm a conductor, and so I actually had my, my little scorebook with me in the middle of the Aww. ensemble. I'm following along. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, things like that um, and how sometimes, even though I expect a certain level of membership in my ensembles, I don't necessarily always do that when I'm in the player's seat. And so <laughs> it just it, – it, I think it's important to, to not lose that sense of, of, you know, what it's like to be in their shoes and, and to be experiencing this. Um, yeah. There's something else I was going to say about repertoire. Um, um, I think just that, uh, yeah, I, I think you've, gotta, you've got to be comfortable going out of your own comfort zone as an educator for the betterment of your students. I don't think you want your limitations to be imposed onto your students. And not only that, I think it's really hard sometimes to not teach without a bias. I mean, I, I have certain opinions, I have certain thoughts on things, but I need to make sure to expose my students to all the various options that are out there and let them decide. And I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing to let them know what my opinion is, but for them to know this is just a way of doing things. It's not the way. And so I, I try really hard not to take hard stances on certain things of, oh, you must do it this way and there's, there's, there's no other option. Because that's, in my experience teaching, that's not the way students learn. I mean, there's no, you are never going to get to a point where, okay, this, this is the way to do it. It's the only way and every other way is wrong. I mean, that sounds very much like the kind of this old sort of North Te- Texas system I was brought <laughs> up in. Um, and I just think we have, to be, we have to be careful about that because, I mean, you never know who's going to be in your ensemble. And you, you've got to make sure that you do whatever it takes to get them to own the material and to understand the material and for it to be applicable to their lives. And, you know, the uh, really quick story. I taught for five years when I left UNT at a small fifth and sixth grade campus. Um, 
went to Penn State, and then uh, did two years there. And then I taught for one year uh, in a small rural town about an hour uh, east of San Antonio, small little oil town. And I was just amazed, number one, how different, the situa how different the situation was compared to my first teaching job. My first teaching job, it was suburban San Antonio, you know, middle class. This other situation, very low socioeconomic population, Title I school. So even just the, the, the setting, I had to change my approach. But not only that, I think in those two years I was away from education, I think kids changed. You know, technology, <laughs> you know, technology got better. The way that they interacted with each other changed. And so, um, again, I think when we take hard stances on things, I mean, the world's going to change around you. I mean, who would have ever guessed at the beginning of the spring semester that we'd be ending the semester this way? And so, you know, I... Even this situation alone, I've I've changed my approach with my students. I mean, I am really flexible on some on, on some things as of late, and you know, I've I've made some accommodations. I've made arrangements with certain students. To it may not they may not be executing certain things in my class the way I had envisioned at the beginning of the semester, but you know, I'm taking it case by case, and I'm basically trying to create a scenario that's the best for that individual student. Hmm. And so, um, I mean, for example, uh, in my conducting class, you know, we're doing uh, this teacher resource guide uh, for a piece of their choosing. And they're having to, you know, research like nine different aspects of this piece, that, uh, again, of their choosing. And, you know, one of my students was talking about, oh, you know, of all the, I have to write all these things. And this is just another thing on my plate, yada, yada, yada. And I said, well, what if you, what if you gave me your presentation, but you just gave it orally and you didn't write it? I mean, even just something as sure, simple accommodation. as that. I mean, I don't need another student, you know, another student uh, piece of work. What if you have some kid with dysgraphia and you need to have different Ex ways of approaching it? If they need to have something be written down, maybe it, they need it, to have it be an oral presentation. Exactly. So, you know, again, going back to this student-centered education, you, you've, you, you're the expert in the room. You have to make decisions on what's going to be best for those students. And if that's, you know... Um, I had a student, or I've had a student in uh, university concert band every semester I've done it, that he's a non-music major, and um, I want to say it was last, I think it was in the fall, he, he, you know, he hadn't auditioned, he didn't, he didn't show up, and so I, I had messaged the student, I was like, hey, where, where are you? Uh, you know, I miss I, you. Yeah. And he goes, <laughs> well, I, you know, I have a class on, on Mondays that conflicts with rehearsal. I said, okay, great. I'll see you on Wednesday. I mean. Oh, you know, yes. And so, you know, I mean, I, I can't have a band if you're not in. I mean, you've been with me this whole time. <laughs> you're, you're a friendly face, you know. So um, I, I wheel and deal like that all the time with students. And I, I think it's really important. And um I just I, I think nowadays you, you have to. I mean, you never know what's going on in a student's life. And, I, you know, when, when students come to me with those kinds of issues, I, you know, I, I choose to believe believe the best. I, I, if, first of all, if they're actually coming up to me and talking to me, that's taking a lot of courage because, of you know, you think of how many students that are going through things and they don't. It's hard. Yeah. I, I, I have gone through an experience of, like, yeah. I go through hard experiences. My, <laughs> I'm never going to forget when uh, Professor Cook, at the beginning of um, the fall, of, of the spring semester, he said, 
I just want you to know that you should always come and talk to me if you need anything because being a music major is a very personal journey. And I went, oh my God, <laughs> I feel that. And I had to go and talk to these teachers. You know, last spring, I had my life fell apart and I needed to go figure it out. And yeah. there were lots of deadlines to contend with. And they're going to think less of me because I have whatever extenuating circumstance. And so going and talking to these teachers, even though I know they're the nicest people on the planet, it like... It's so hard to do. It is. But, you, I mean, you have to remember, we're, we're there for you guys. I mean, we don't have jobs if you're not there. And, <laughs> I mean, and I don't know. I, I just think back to the teachers that have done that for me and how meaningful it was to me. Um, I mean, it, I, th I think that's always important. You know, ground yourself in, you know, who was it that inspired you to go into this profession? What was it about Vint? You know, whether it was, you know, my high school band director that drove, you know, across the state of Texas with my mother and sister, which I have done before. And let me tell you, I don't recommend it. OK, <laughs> so I mean, the fact that he was willing to do that to get me into the school of my dreams, I, I'm never going to forget that. And so, you know, if even if you can just do that for one person, I mean, it is the most rewarding feeling. Um, when I was teaching, I used to keep it was in my desk drawer. And it was in a in a you know big yellow envelope, and I and I wrote on the envelope, "When you're having a bad day, dot dot dot," and it was just a collection of all of the letters and notes and emails that I had received from either current students or former students or whatever, you know, just thanking me for for everything I did. And it's when you're having a tough time, I you know I, I try to ground myself with 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 things like that because it it reminds me, this is why I'm doing this. Because honestly, I mean, this job can get really difficult. And it, it's difficult no matter where you are. I mean, people think, oh, you're a grad student at UNT. You get to conduct one of their bands. Oh, that must just be a cakewalk. No, I, I, I actually have to deal with the same issues, you know, every other school does. And, you know, we're, we're not up here on some pedestal. I mean, we have to work for what we get as well. And there's days where it's really tough. Um, there, there's days where sometimes I walk in the room and I know that what we're about to do is not a priority for some of the students in the room. I get that. And so it's trying to find ways to, to get them on board. Because I, I can tell you, I've, Professor Glocky was a perfect example. Uh, and actually with Psalm for Band, he was, he was doing that piece at Penn State. And again, it wasn't an immediate sell for me. I didn't really understand it. I didn't get it. But to see his energy and to see how excited he got about this piece it made me rethink it. Huh, there's something here. There's something here that I, I, need, to, I need to pay attention to and I need to get with it. <laughs> and so, um, you know, Cough, I, Lincolnshire Posey, cough with Doc, Professor Cook, cough. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, my hope is that at no point anyone would ever leave my ensemble and say, I just don't think Brett was having a good time or I don't think Brett actually believed in the things he was doing. Or, I mean, I would hope that people think, he was always really well prepared and he was always the most energetic person in the room. You know, I, I there's of course a little variable, you know, <laughs> on that there's, you know, there were some days where I showed up, I was in a better mood than others, but you know, I think you have to kind of put that aside as an educator. I, I, I really don't think you're going to get any students who are ever going to be more excited about what you're doing than you are. I mean, you have an unlimited amount of influence. Um, in fact, I think, 
you know, some people think, oh, you know, what do conductors really do? I mean, you guide, not only do you guide the music, but you guide the energy, you guide the, the rapport, you guide the atmosphere in the room. And, you know, I think there's times where I've taken that for granted. I think there's times where I've gotten in the ensemble's way. I've, you know, they, they may not sound their best and it's something I'm doing. I mean, I, I think you've probably both been there in scenarios where I'll start conducting and I'll say, okay, if I stop conducting, you keep playing. And then the sound gets better when I stop, <laughs> you know, and then I have to evaluate, okay, am I, am I, am I, I introducing yeah. tension into their sound because of something I'm doing, you know? And so, you know, it's the, the, the subtleties of conducting. But so Hayden and I are both in fundamentals of conducting classes right now. Uh, listeners, Hayden is in the wonderful Brett Penshorn's um, yes. Fundamentals of Conducting class. It, I'm it, not. It happens. <laughs> yeah. It happens. Um, I, as we end this semester, um, oh my God, it's so hard. Conducting is so hard. It is. There's just this finesse that like, how do you not introduce tension? I'm tense. I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, yeah, it's, it's so, yeah. I, 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 I get it. Teaching conducting is, is something that I have actually found to be a lot more difficult than, than I thought. And I'm so glad, you know, my first job was teaching fifth and sixth grade students. And I, I taught every single instrument. I was the only band director on campus. So, I mean, I was in charge of starting these kids for the first two years on all the instruments, percussion included. Wow. And, and so I've given a lot of thought to the pedagogy of learning. And I was having this discussion with a student the other day. Um, they had asked me, you know, what do you feel like is lacking in teacher preparedness programs? To be completely honest with you, I don't think as a music educator, when I left North Texas, and I, I don't think this is, a, this is a diss on North Texas. I think this is a diss on a lot of programs in that I don't think that we leave these teacher preparedness programs really understanding how people actually learn. And, and this was something that I... I had to kind of figure out on my own as I was teaching. You know, my very first year, I basically taught everything one way. If the students didn't understand it, well, that's their fault. They're just, they're just a bad student. And what I quickly realized was that students learn in different ways. And the, you know, the chemistry makeup of your classroom, I mean, it changes from class to class. It changes from year to year. I've had years that have been way easier than some years. And you, you will never get to a point where you're like, okay, I've, I've, I've figured it out. I know how to do it. Um, but I, I started presenting things multiple ways. Okay, Here, here's something for my visual learners. If they see it, they got it. Okay, now here's something for my, you know, the, the, the learners that have to hear it. And then you've got learners that they've, they've, got, to, they've got to touch it. They've got to feel, you know. And so um, with conducting, it's, it's tough because... I, you know, that, and there's been a, there's a lot of textbooks out there. There's a lot of methods of how to do this. And, and essentially what people do is they learn the gesture first and they learn the mechanics and they learn basically the scales of conducting. That's what I'll call it, the scales of conducting. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, now we're going to learn how to score study. We're going to learn how to do all this. And okay, now be musical. And I, there's always, a, there's always, <laughs> and there's always a drop off at that point. You know, it, it, it's like getting your beginner flute players making a great sound on the head joint, and they feel so confident, they're so great, and everything. And then you add the rest of the instrument, and it all goes south. I mean, just, um, 
And so I've given a lot of thought to this. And especially, you know, with this semester and going to online, which, as we all know, conducting, you have to have groups to what because it's not it's choreography you're dancing to music you know and that's, yes and, and and so i just wrote about that in a spotty valve yeah and so <laughs> and so not having a group that's actually responding to what they're doing and that was something in my class that i i you know, i would have to remind you know hey i know this is an 8 a.m class but please play it the way that they're conducting it because everyone in the room is a good musician, they're gonna they're gonna save the integrity of the piece, and they're going to, you know, play it the way that they know it should go. But that's not helping the conductor. And so, um, you know, as we tra transitioned to online, what I went ahead and did, we took a step back, and we spent a lot of time on the score study aspect. And I and I actually think that that worked really well in an online setting. I was able to share my screen. I had a PDF. I was you know basically walking them through how, here's how you analyze a score and here's you know all the various components of that because for me that's where I'm deciding what kind of gesture I'm going to use I approach it from the study side first I don't just get up and move you know I I've got to know what I want to say about the piece before I say it and so that was one thing that we did this semester that I, I do think that was successful was we really, I, I, I feel like I showed them, here's how you dig into a piece. And we did, um, we actually started, so I don't know what excerpts, Hannah, that you guys used, but everyone in my class had a packet and it was basically like SATB excerpts, you know, four parts. Um, they were all in concert pitch. So if you played a, a transposing instrument, you had to transpose on site. But what I did then, it, so we started with something really basic. The next step was I handed out, I think, the condensed score to the whole second suite. It was the condensed score because, again, it was similar enough to what we had started with in the semester, but it's starting to get to, you know, real full-blown music. And it was really easy to analyze. Everything's in concert pitch. You can see the chords. Well, then I went ahead and sent out the full score to the host. And so that provided... Oh. That provided a really unique uh, opportunity to compare the two. You know, rather than me lecturing on, okay, here's the pros of a condensed score, here's the cons, they're seeing it in real life. And they were able to see, okay, what is the full score now showing that the condensed score didn't, and vice versa. And, you know, we learned that if with some pieces, there's both of those options available. There's a full score and a condensed score, and that I'll use both. If I'm, if I'm doing a harmonic analysis, yeah, I mean, I can, I can do the full score and do it the hard way, or I can just go to the, you know, <laughs> go to the easy version. And so I, I felt like that was a really interesting way to go about doing that. Um, we also did Omanya Mysterium, but we started with the choral version. Ooh. Number one, because I had a lot of choral students in the class, but number two, when you add text, you add a whole new layer of, of study and understanding that, you know, you have to understand you know, where are the consonants? Where are the vowels? How are these, you know, consonants shaped? Um, and how are you going to demonstrate that with your hands? My my conductor, my conducting teacher is the men's chorus director. So he's had us, like, review his conducting and, like, you know, what do you see? Because almost all of, I think we have one vocalist in the class, which is unfortunate for Francis Vu. But, <laughs> um, well, that means he gets to teach band people. But, um all of us were like, oh, yeah, open oral cavity. Mm -hmm. 
I get that applies. And so he, you know, he uses all of these specific gestures and it's like, I had never thought about having your hands mimic the shape of your mouth because ha you have different vowels to right. say. Well, and the other thing, I mean, the, the text has punctuation. So it's telling you where the breaks in the phrases are or it's showing you where a new phrase starts. And I think that was the really valuable thing for the instrumentalists in the class was, I mean, we analyzed pretty deeply the, the choral score, and then we go over to the band score, which doesn't have really any of the breath marks. It doesn't have any of the punctuation. You don't have the text. And so I felt like that was a really good learning opportunity for them that if you ever do a piece that's inspired by a choral work, you've got to start with the choral one first. And you, you have to know, you know where the stresses are, how the, you know, how the, the text is set. Um, and I, if I remember correctly, I mean, it's a note for note transcription um, so, you know, that, that was a really, I think that, that worked out really well, but, um, yeah, I mean, you have to be informed, like I said, about what you want to say before you say it with your hands. And I, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know many people who get up on the podium and know their music well enough, especially with, with undergrads. They know it on a, on a surface level and they know that I have to cue this person at this point and I have to cue this person at this point, And it just becomes a game of whack-a-mole. <laughs> rather than rather than them actually inspiring the music out of the players and really really being the leader of of what's about to go on um something else i did with my class and this was before we went on break and such is that i would i'd have them get up and conduct something and then i would make them do the same thing but do it differently and and um because again, it's not choreography. You're not gonna do the same thing every time. You're gonna do what works. And if something doesn't work, you have to change yourself rather than changing, you know, you've gotta do something different and it's gonna inspire something different in them. And another thing we did was I had them inventory the different layers. So let's say, you know, for example, um, in, you know, in a piece where there's all these different parts, I mean, you can, pretty much narrow it down to anywhere from two to maybe five things going on at the same time and coming up with a gesture for each of those groups. I mean, I remember there was a, you know, I told someone, hey, just conduct the bass line. And it was, you know, three whole notes of the same pitch tied in a row and then it changed in the fourth measure and they're conducting four beats to the bar like, like oh, every, yeah. every beat's the same thing. And so, you know, adapting the pattern to actually match the music that you're conducting. What do those bass players need to know? Well, when does the note start and when does it change? Or and and what needs to happen, you know, during the note. But giving four beats for the entire duration of that, that's that's not information that's really all that meaningful for them. And I don't, I don't know about you, but any time that I'm being talked at and it's a lot of stuff that really doesn't apply to me. I mean, I tune it out. And so I think the same thing is true with conducting, that I think we do a lot of white noise conducting. I think we do a lot of things to give us stuff to do, but it means nothing to the players. And so that's something I'm always trying to think of is how can I be really efficient with what I'm doing, but communicate as much as possible? And I, and I, I, really, I really try to think. I mean, if there's any beats that I can get rid of, get rid of them. Because beats aren't where the music is. The music happens between the beats. And that's something um, with my conducting class, I mean, that's one of my mantras is right now you're focused on where the beats are. What I want you focused on is what's happening between the beats. 
And I mean, that's, I think that's great advice for all. Um, and, and you know, the only, the only other thing I, I have to say, I, I was really careful with my class to show a bunch of videos of myself because what I do works for me. It's not necessarily going to work for anybody else. Nobody in that class has the same biological makeup I have. They, they don't look how I do. They're not, you know. And so, you know, you're, you're going to be a sponge and you're going to absorb things from different people. I mean, there's certain gestures I have that I know, okay, I got that one from Professor Corporon. Oh, that was, the, that was a Glocky. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's just the way it is. I mean, you just, you, you pick up stuff like that and you put it in your gesture tool belt and you move on. <laughs> but rather than just stealing a gesture, I think you need to steal the reason behind the gesture. I think you need to be able mm. to justify why you're doing it and why it works for you. And, um, you know, like you said, conducting is such a personal thing and you have to, you have to basically figure out how do I make my body and my architecture look like this is really natural and really comfortable. Because if I'm natural and I'm comfortable, the players in front of me will be natural and comfortable and the music will sound a certain way. Um, and when I was at Penn State, I took lessons in Alexander Technique, which was essentially a way to relearn how to, uh, like how to exist in your own body. Babies that are born, they use their bodies extremely efficiently. And then once we grow up, there's this concept called downward pull. You start feeling awkward because you're growing and getting taller. And it, and for me, I got really tall. And so it's like I kind of sunk in. I didn't want to be so visible. And I, and marching band makes that something I have to tell kids to not do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, um, and essentially, you know, we we sort of power through discomfort and uncomfort in our bodies. And, and there's there's just a way of being and, and relearning how to hold yourself and how to how to use your body as efficiently as possible. And that's going to look differently for every person. And so, yeah, there's certain rules of conducting, but at the same time, you know, you're probably the best person to decide whether or not you look comfortable or not. And so I can't stress enough that, you know, if you're ever practicing gesture or, you know, look at yourself in the mirror, video yourself and just be... Does it ever get less cringy? It yeah. makes me feel bad. <laughs> Absolutely. I, re I remember for the longest time I wouldn't watch my videos because you, you sound stupid, you look stupid, you're, you know, the whole imposter syndrome thing, I, you know. Um, you know, it... For me, at this point, it's a little easier. It's still tough. And I know that this is something I'm going to be developing for the rest of my life. I will never forget Professor Fisher. This was, I was in one of his classes. And, you know, he must have been in his 60s by this point. And, you know, he was saying how, you know, the day before, a light bulb, you know, went off in his head. And he kind of started to rethink a certain way that he was teaching something. And... So he, you know, he did it a different way and it was way better. And so, at, you know, even at that age, he's realizing that there's still ways to improve and to get better. And so, you know, conducting is a lot, it, it takes a long time. I mean, think of it this way. This is your, you're basically a beginner now on conducting. How long did it take you to get really good at your instrument? It took a long time. And 
none of us are, you know, professionals. We're not at the point yet where we are like, you know what? I beat the game. I, you know, <laughs> I don't have to practice driving <laughs> anymore. Like, right. I'm just perfect at it. <laughs> right, right. But you know, I we all get impatient. We all just want to. We all just want to be there and look. You know, look a <laughs> certain way. Just be good already. Right. <laughs> and so, um, but it, it, it takes a lot of time, and that's something that I've been doing as of lately with, you know, the. I mean, my, my, us Win Studies grad students, I mean, our lives have completely changed from going, you know, from working as hard as we do, you know, pretty much every day of the week to now. I mean, we have a lot of free time on our hands because, you know, and so, I mean, I've just, I've, I've been trying to at least dive into a score a day and, wow. just, and just, you know, develop my understanding of pieces, whether or not I'm ever going to, you know, perform them or not. I, I um, so... Yeah, but I, you know, with conducting class, it's it's a tough thing to teach, and it's it's exponentially more difficult when you don't actually get to deal with real life musicians, because that's at the end of the day, that's what's that's where I think you learn the most is getting that kind of feedback, um, and I'm I'm kind of getting to the point now where I don't really care how I look, as long as I'm getting the sounds that I want. Now, not to say I'm going to go up there and look stupid, but um, I, I'm just starting to realize that I think we get really superficial, that we want to look like a conductor. And for me, I just I want the music to sound good, and I want the students to feel safe, and I want them to, to, to do their best. And so whatever that takes from me, I'm willing to do. And so... Um, I mean, that's, that's really what makes conducting difficult is there, there's such a psychological aspect to it and people are going to sniff if, if you're not prepared or you're not inspired or you don't, if you don't do your homework, the ensemble is going to sniff it out immediately. And that's, that's the thing that is always in my mind is that at any point, one of these students, what if they challenge me? What if they challenge a decision? What if they ask me a question about what this chord is? What if they don't know the fingering? What if they're not, they, what if they're not making a characteristic sound on their instruments? You know, what if, what if, what if? I mean, there's no telling what's going to happen in your rehearsal. And being prepared in all of those ways. I mean, I'm so glad my first five years of teaching was teaching beginners because I know my fingerings. And I know <laughs> I can at least look at a score and be able to somewhat predict what the instrument specific issues are going to be with the, with that piece. And, um, you know, the, the, the pedagogy aspect of things, you know, rather than, Oh, clarinets, why can't you get this? Why can't you get this? And then you look at it. Oh, it's cause they're alternating right pinky and left pinky. Oh, got it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, th those kinds of things. Um, and that was something I got from, from professor Fisher. I mean, he was really big about, you know, you've, you've got to know those things because, you know, in college it's nice. I can just say, Oh, you know, go talk to your, private lesson teacher about that you know oh go pay attention to music theory learn about that dominant quarter but <laughs> it's like well you're teaching it now yeah well but when you guys go out into the into the schools I mean you may be in a situation like me where you are the history teacher and the uh, theory teacher and the oral skills teacher and the private lesson teacher and you know you are going to wear many hats and so um you know, I think that's that's really important that if you're going to get up in front of a group of students and be the authority on a subject, you need to know it inside and out and left and right and back and forward and, and, and every which way. And you're not going to be very good at it for a while. And it's OK. <laughs> it's OK. Um, 
you know, I, luckily for me, my first job was 10 and 11 year olds. What do they know? <laughs> I, I kid, of course, but um, it, it, it was, it was the perfect first job for me, I, I thought. And so, um, yeah, so, so, so to answer your question, Hannah, it, it will get easier, um, but don't, you know, don't downplay the fact that you have to put time into it. And you have to, I mean, how, you know what it takes to become, you know, a really, really good trumpet player. It's the same with, with being a conductor. The problem is, though, with conducting, you can't take your instrument home with you to practice. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a lot of mental, just kind of getting your thoughts and getting your mind in order and the score study aspect of it. And then going to the rehearsal and trying to bring it to life. And that's, you know, for me, a rehearsal isn't just trying to get things right. It's trying to figure, I mean, I'm rehearsing myself as well. How can I get this out of the musicians? How can I be the advocate for a piece to where the composer is would be comfortable that I'm rehearsing this piece for them? And so it's, um, it's, it's a lot, and it's a lot of responsibility. But I will say that preparedness is key. And I think you have some great examples of that here at UNT. I mean, these, these people who are running your ensembles know these pieces inside and out. And, um, and I, I think that's, that's so important. You're the like perfect person for this first episode. I, <laughs> yeah. I can't believe that we got so lucky to have you on this show. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah thank you. I, I, I can't thank you guys enough. I mean, I was, I was honored when you asked and, and, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's days that you might find me and I might not be in a great mood and I, I might not be saying <laughs> the best things about UNT, but honestly, UNT has really changed my life in really, really positive ways. And so, like I said, the, the opportunity to give back is really, really rewarding. And so, you know, thank you for, thank you for thinking of me. Um, this is, this is great. And I, and I, I, I hope we can continue with this and get some, get some other people that actually know what they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, no, you're doing well, so good. Yeah, no, you got really. the wisdom. Well, before we end, we do have some rapid fire questions. Oh man. Okay. So <laughs> oh, wait, can the first one be the dip and dots one? Oh God. Okay. What's your favorite flavor of dip and dots? Banana split. <laughs> Sorry. Banana split. Oh my God. Whoa. He knew I'm off the cuff. I didn't expect that at all. When it's something important like Dippin' Dots, you got it now. Banana split. Okay. okay. All right, go. Okay. Rapid fire. Favorite color? Blue. Oh, nice. Actually, Favorite apple. I'm sorry. Oh. Let me go back. Can I amend? Okay. Yeah. I have a story yes. about this. So <laughs> my favorite color was green. High school, Marion Bulldogs, we, green. we were green. North Texas <laughs> was green. Then I go to my first job. Jordan Intermediate School where the Eagles, they're blue. Oh, that was another thing is that there was always something. Con so like high school, we were green, Marion Bulldogs. The green carries over to North Texas. We're the Eagles, right? <laughs> yeah. I then go to my first job at Jordan Intermediate where the Jordan Eagles and we're blue. My next stop is Penn State, which is blue the nittany lions and then we're back i'm back to north texas and green so i've had a lot of green and blue in my life and so i'm actually going to amend my statement and i actually had a baton made with this color it's actually teal and oh. it's mixing oh, i love that mixing green and blue <laughs> so together because i mean both of those places are uh you know, really big influences in my life. So anyway. For listeners who could not see Brett, he like immediately whipped out a baton 
Right, right. It was there on, I... off the cuff. <laughs> <laughs> and it's gorgeous. <laughs> all right. All right. Okay, let's, uh, sorry for that side. But... <laughs> it's all right. right. Uh, uh, favorite kind of apple? Starts again. <laughs> um, Fuji. All right. Creamy or crunchy peanut butter? Creamy. Practice north or south and why? Ooh. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember which one I used. I think I used north because when Ooh. I when I left north, I was like, it was a straighter shot to the entrance of the music building. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Does that, does that sound right? That's a yeah. good reason. Because if you come out of south and you go across Avenue C, you kind of got to walk up that hill. Yeah. That's a, that's You're a nearer thing. to the composition division, which is why I would go to south. Mm. Um, north has more pianos now. Neither of them have music stands. Whatever. <laughs> to, to be honest with you, the second I was hired at Wind Studies, I actually started to um, – I snuck into the Wind Studies office late at night, and I would just practice in the library because the acoustics were better. And may, may I tell a quick funny story? Yes. Okay. So I had just gotten my keys to Win Studies, and I had I went up there, you know, late at night, and I, I had gotten approval from the grad students, like, hey, you know, yeah, it's fine, you know, just go up there and practice. No one's ever there, you know, late at night. And so I'm practicing there in the library, and I don't. I'm sure you guys have, have been there at Win Studies. That the door to the library is right across the door from Professor Corporon's office, and it's at the end of the hall. And there's a door to the outside, sort of facing, you know, Fouts and Apogee out that way well so i'm practicing in there and i hear that door to the outside open and i freak out <laughs> because you know i i had just you know i just gotten my keys i had just started working there oh my gosh i'm you know i i just i freaked out so i run over to the door the door's closed to the library lights are on so i run over there and i turn the lights off and i had seen like there was like two or three people that had like walked down the hallway. And so I like turned the lights off and I'm like hiding behind, you know, like, <laughs> like looking out the window. And I don't know, like maybe five minutes pass. And before I know it, someone's on the other side of the library door with their key opening it. And <gasps> so the door opens and I'm stuck behind the door. I'm like pinned between the door and the wall. <laughs> and... Oh, no. It hits me, and so I come stumbling out. It's Dennis Fisher, his wife, and, like, a friend of theirs from out of town. And he was kind of showing them the office and such. And the whole reason he was coming in there was because the light was on when he walked by, and the light was off when he – and he just thought that was odd. I mean, nothing, nothing gets past this guy. And so he asked me, Brett, what are you doing? Just like that. And I said the first thing that came to mind. I, was, I said – Hiding from you. <laughs> so, needless to say, that that story was a was a favorite among Win Studies for a while. It even got retold at our end of the semester faculty luncheon. So that was fun. I love that so much. <laughs> so De right. Dennis Fisher and I go way back. Homies. That's amazing. Hiding from you. <laughs> okay, resuming rapid fire. Right. Favorite food. Asian food, like Chinese food. That's mm. fair. Oriental Express forever. <sighs> Slap. <laughs> Favorite food that's not, or, oh my God. Favorite <laughs> instrument that's not your instrument. Ooh, um, bassoon. Ooh. Instrument you hate the most. 
Oh no. <laughs> I don't I don't necessarily hate any instruments. Um He's got to be diplomatic. Yeah. It's my own instrument. I kind of hate this accent. We call I this. To- <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think hate's a strong word. I My thing with the saxophone is that I just feel like it's capable of such beauty. And I just feel like there's a lot of times where it's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, That's fair. All right. If you had to have a non-music job, what would you do? have a non-music job i've Mm -hmm. i have thought about this question at length and to be completely honest with you and maybe this forgive me for not answering the question i if anything i think this just affirms that i'm doing the right thing with my life because i literally can't come up with anything (laughs) i mean i've i've even i've even written down okay here's like how other people would describe me like with adjectives and such and like what job would that be good for and I, I just I, I don't come up with anything. I, I'm I'm open to suggestions. I mean, maybe when this music thing you know works or doesn't work out, I should always have a plan B. But right now, I don't have a plan B, and I don't. I think it's working out. Yeah. Well, time will tell. Still okay. early. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Mm. I think it's a hybrid. Mm. Oh. Ah. That's kind Diplomatic. of di- like yeah. <laughs> All right. Would I'm you excited. rather fight one hundred piccolo-sized tubas or five tuba-sized piccolos? Would I rather fight? Yeah. Um. <laughs> oh well, here's the thing: is the five ones the size of a tuba wouldn't sound like piccolos anymore. Yeah, that's fair. So I'll oh. take those. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's your Pokemon type? Oh, this is a good one. Um, to be honest with you, I think it's water. Yeah, I water always, gang. I always did better when I started with Squirtle than with Charmander <laughs> or Bulbasaur. Every time. <laughs> For me, water was the way to go. For sure, absolutely. That's a good answer. All right, where is your go-to lunch in the Union? It's not at the Union, it's at the sub <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Do you have a go-to Denton lunch? Subhub potential? Subhub, um, I've become a big fan of, oh my gosh, it's been so long since I've been there, I can't even, oh, Pizza Snob. I love me some yes. Pizza Snob. And that's, that's a, uh, every once in a while I'll take the librarians there. That's like our kind of go-to spot. Um, they don't get paid enough and they get really overworked <laughs> and so we've got to have something. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I like that place. There's also right there on that corner of Fort Worth drive. There's that ramen place that I've really, oh. yes. and that's, that's sort of become the pre-concert, uh, place that we'll go to before any of the concerts. And I know, um, Alyssa Gray, one of the PhD music ed students, who's one of my very good friends. Um, uh, that's kind of our spot. So those, those two, I, I really enjoy. Aww. Okay. Chicken nuggets or sandwich? Like, they're both great. Well, okay. <laughs> That's what I said. Sandwich if it doesn't have a pickle on it, but yeah. it's probably chicken nuggets. Mm. Okay. Chick fil A sauce or cane sauce? Ooh. 
Is it the generic Chick-fil-A sauce or is it that like any kind of because you know there's like the oh right no just like like the name like chick-fil-a sauce like the yellow one. Oh, oh i'm gonna have to go with canes and mm. here's here's what you do you ask not for the coleslaw but you ask for an extra sauce so that way you don't have to ration your one sauce look come on <laughs> <laughs> my boyfriend is um He's been working at Cane's for years, and so he's got, like, all the hacks, and he's like, you should order this. <laughs> yeah. She get an extra toast, and he, he talks about how much they upcharge the sauce. Oh, and that's ridiculous. they are stealing from people. Oh, I, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but it's, so, it's pretty good. It's a, I think that's the right choice. I think Cane's is the right choice. Yes. Anyway, if you had to name your kid a music term, what would their name be? <laughs> I don't know. There's a certain ring to Niente Pentorn. Uh <laughs> Rest. <laughs> yeah, approximatato pinchorn. <laughs> All right, we have one last one. Okay. You want to go for it, Hayden? How was your day? Oh, to be honest with you, I um, it was good. It was good. My days, it's it's weird. My days now are really messed up. I don't wake up as early as I used to anymore. I yeah. stay up really late. I've, I've ad- adopted kind of the Daniel Cook schedule, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yep. go, going to bed at four o'clock in the morning and, you know, maybe I'll be yeah. up by noon. Um, <laughs> but for me, it's with, with our, with my apartment here, I don't know why I just, I, I do better thinking and I do better study at night. Um, there's just, I, I don't know. There's, there's something about nighttime where I, I, it just sort of clears my thoughts and I'm able to focus on what I need to, um, so yeah cool well thank you very much for for being on we really we really 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 appreciate it for being on the inaugural episode of the college of music in context podcast thank Ah, you okay well (laughs) it was great talking to you uh that's what we'll call it we'll see you guys next week maybe hopefully Hey, do you guys like the College of Music in Context podcast? What'd you think? Let us know by visiting our Twitter page, at UNT Comic Podcast. Let us know. Give us suggestions. Did you hate it? Did you love it? See what's coming on in future episodes. After this episode, we'll be giving you, dear listeners, a chance to ask your own burning questions about life and occasionally music to our guests every week through that very Twitter. Again, the handle is at UNT Comic Podcast. Anyway, thanks so much for watching. Uh, We'll see you guys next week back here on the UNT College of Music in Context podcast. This is me, Hayden. And Hannah Brayfield. Signing off. See ya. Love y'all. Bye. Bye.